Matthew chapter 6, uh, here we are, and uh, why don't we start here in uh, verse 31. Again, as I said, this is going to be our third week here looking at this verse here in Matthew chapter 6, but there was uh, just a few more things that I felt like we needed to share on this before we moved on. And so Jesus here in verse 31, he says, therefore, do not be anxious or don't worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, and, and here he, he's using that term as a way of, of talking about people who are outside of God's covenant. And you and I, who are Gentiles today, we're, we're not in this category of what Jesus is talking about because we are part of his covenant. We have been grafted into the covenant that God made with Abraham through what Christ did. And so what Jesus here is contrasting is he's saying that, that those who are separated from God, those who don't have a relationship with God because of their sin, be, because they have not had faith in Christ, that they think about life a different way. They pursue different things. They have different priorities. But, but you, and that is but us, we are, are to live life a different way because we have a relationship with the creator of the universe. We have, the relation, we have a relationship with, and, a, and a paternal relationship. He is our father. We, we don't have a strained relationship. We don't have a relationship that's at odds. But he welcomes us into his family. The, the one who, who has no lack. The one who, who owns everything. And so he says, the Gentiles seek after these things. They're preoccupied with all of these earthly things and these, these earthly needs. But Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God's going to take care of you. Verse 33, but he contrasts that with saying, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would press it down deep into our hearts this morning. Lord, I know that we are all from different backgrounds, different stages in life, different places, even in the city. Lord, some of us are on top of the mountain today, just celebrating you and, and thanking you for, for the way you've worked in our lives, Lord. I know some of us here today are walking through the valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, we're, we're, we're walking through a deep and a dark place. Lord, some of us woke up this morning. We don't even know where we're at. We're just here this morning. Lord, I know that you, by your spirit, want to move in all of our hearts and all of our lives. So whether we're on the mountain or whether in, we're in the valley, Lord, I pray that we would sense your presence and that you would use your word to, to move us forward and to to bring us healing, that we might bring you glory through our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Again, as we've looked at over the last few weeks at this passage in Matthew's gospel, there's a, a heavy emphasis on the kingdom of God, a very heavy emphasis, uh, emphasized even in the very first verse where it begins to talk about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, that is the, the king. And it goes through, and Jesus, the first message Jesus preaches is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, it is, it is here, it is breaking into the world. 
Over 50 times in Matthew's gospel, the word kingdom appears. Last week, we looked at some reasons why we don't think in kingdom terms. If you missed that, I encourage you to go on our website and watch it. I think it'll be helpful for you. But what we've seen is that Jesus is teaching us how to live our lives. We're not to live lives just driven by tradition. We're not to live lives just driven by the culture. We're not to just live lives just kind of going about it aimlessly, you know, que sera, sera, hukuna matata, whatever, that, that we have a, a, an operating principle by which we are to live our lives. And it is this, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. We've been talking about that over the last few weeks. And as I was meditating on it again this week, it dawned on me that I hadn't really even given yet a definition for the kingdom of God. And I probably should have started with that, but you know how things go sometimes. But I'm going to give it to you for, I'm going to give it to you this morning, this definition. I think it's an obvious question when you read to seek first the kingdom of God. The obvious question is, okay, well, what is the kingdom of God? What is that? What is this kingdom that we're to be seeking after? If somebody were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? I was reading in my Bible here, Matthew's gospel, and it just keeps talking over and over and over about the kingdom of God. What is that? If someone were to ask you that, I'm not, don't shout it out, just think it in your mind for a minute. What would you say? How would you answer them? Now, I think a very uh, a quick and easy answer for that is simply to say the rule and the reign of Christ. What is the kingdom of God? It is the rule and the reign of Christ. Christ is king and he rules and he reigns. But then the question comes up immediately following that, over what does he reign? What does he reign over exactly? What is he ruling and reigning over today? And so I want to look at this this morning. I've been talking about this with, uh, uh, in our King's Bible Institute. So if you've been there this last unit, some of this will be very familiar for you. But I wanted to bring this here to the rest of the church uh, this morning. This morning I'm going to give you a definition for the kingdom of God. And hear me in this. I hope you will never forget it. I hope that for the rest of your life, every time you see this term, every time you hear this phrase, kingdom of God, I hope you will remember these Things. So I'd encourage you, if you have something to take notes with today, pull that out. Pull out the notes app on your phone. Don't go to Instagram and start looking at reels, okay? Go, go to your notes app, look, type, type some things in. I'm going to give some things for you, some things that you can jot down, especially these scripture references. I think I'm going to give you some things this morning that you might want to reference again and continue to meditate on and let these verses bear fruit in your life life. Every kingdom that has ever existed, whether it's the kingdom of God or an earthly kingdom, and it's interesting that Jesus uses this terminology of the kingdom of God, using, taking from uh, an earthly concept to explain a spiritual idea. He, he used something that everybody would have been very familiar with. Again, we struggle with this a little bit because we don't live in a kingdom. But every kingdom that has ever existed, to be a kingdom, it must have four things. Everybody say four things. Four things. 
And I have come up with a way to make all four of these things start with the letter P, all right? So these four P's this morning. Every kingdom has these four things. A person, a people, a place, and precepts. Say that with me this morning. A person, people, place, and precepts. If you were to look at, say, the United Kingdom, for example, the person, the king, who would be the king of the United Kingdom? King, somebody said Jesus. You're already, you're already 20 minutes ahead of us, folks. <laughs> king Charles, right? In the kingdom of the United Kingdom, it is King Charles. And who are the people of the United Kingdom? Well, it's the people of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. It's the, the, the subjects, the, the people. What is the place? Well, it's Great Britain. We know where the territory is. You can point to it on a map. You can see the borders. This, this is where the king's authority starts, and this is where the king's authority stops. And the precepts, what is that? Well, that's the laws of the land. Uh, historically known as British common law. And so every kingdom, if it is going to be a kingdom, it's going to have these four things. It's going to have a person. It's going to have the king, the monarch, the, the ruler. It's going to have the people, the people that he rules over. It's going to have the place, a, a specific geography, outlined, de delineated borders. And it will have the precepts, the laws of the land. Now, when it comes to Christ, when Christ came to the earth, he established God's kingdom. He established God's kingdom. And throughout the, the Old Testament, there had been glimpses in Israel's history of God's kingdom. But through Christ's work, his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection his glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father, through Christ's work, he fully inaugurated, established God's kingdom on the earth. You see, God's kingdom is not just in heaven, but Christ established it here on the earth. Now, there are some who would argue, I will say wrongly, that Jesus did not establish God's kingdom. That God's kingdom will only be established when he returns. Uh, this view is called dispensationalism. I don't have time to get in all the technicalities of that view this morning. But I can summarize it shortly by simply saying those who hold to that view do not believe that Jesus established the kingdom of God, but, and they do not believe that we are living in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom age, that that is a future reality for when Christ returns. Now, I have a lot of problems with that. Um, I have 55 problems with that just from Matthew's gospel alone with all of the teaching that Jesus gives on the kingdom of God. Uh, they would argue that he's teaching about the future kingdom age after he returns. Uh, that just makes no sense to me uh, whatsoever. But I want to show you a verse from Luke chapter 11 this morning that 
um, I, I think absolutely seals the deal on this issue of whether Jesus inaugurated, established the kingdom of God while he was here. It's Luke chapter 11. There's a lot of places we could go to, to make this point this morning. I, I don't feel like I need to take the time to do that, but I just want to show you one place in Luke chapter 11. Here Jesus does something wonderful. He casts out a demon spirit. And his opposition uh, said that Jesus is casting out demons. Yeah, he can do that, but he can only do that because he himself is filled with demons. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would Satan do that? A house divided against itself won't stand, Jesus says. But notice here in this verse 20 in Luke chapter 11 as he's uh, responding to this. He says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If Jesus cast out demons by the power of God, that in and of itself is evidence that he has and was establishing his kingdom on the earth. That's according to the words of Christ. The kingdom has come upon you, Jesus says, because I am casting, I am exercising power over demonic spirits. So, we are living in the kingdom of God. Jesus established the kingdom of God. So how do we fill in this chart for the kingdom of God? I want you to flip over with me to Matthew 28. I know this is very well-worn territory for us as a church, but it is, it is absolutely essential and foundational. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. He is about to ascend into heaven. He gathers his disciples to himself. And it says in verse 17, Matthew 28, 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, this is, this is how we're going to fill in the chart this morning from this passage. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A kingdom has four things. Without these four things, you don't have a kingdom. It starts with the person. It starts with the king. In the kingdom of God, who is the king? Jesus, King Jesus. I'm not going to belabor this point. Hopefully by next week we have a sign that declares this. Christ is king. He is the person. He is the king in the kingdom of God. Now here is an important question. Who are the people over which he reigns? Who are the people? Well, let's look back at our text. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. The people that Jesus reigns over is all people. 
all people, all nations. When Christ died and rose again, he was given all authority. It's not simply that Jesus reigns over Christians, which he does, hopefully, hopefully. But Christ claims, the claims of Christ is that he reigns over all people, over all nations, he says. I know, again, we're talking well-worn territory this morning, but flip over with me to Ephesians 1. Stay here in Matthew 28, but Ephesians 1, just very quickly. I want to make the case for you that Christ doesn't only reign over Christians, but that Christ right now presently reigns over everyone. Ephesians 1 Uh, Starting in verse 20, talking about the greatness of God's power, he says in verse 20 that he used this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. So it's not just his resurrection, it's his ascension as well. He, he, He rose and ascended and he is seated, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Look at this, verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ reigns over all people, over all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. So, so what name, who, who, who is outside of this claim? I guess you could say, well, somebody was born and nobody gave them a name. Well, I mean, you're kind of being ridiculous at this point. Everyone, everyone is subject to the authority of Christ. This is what Paul preaches in Acts chapter 17. We don't have time to go there this morning. Uh, You can put that in your notes. Go read that uh, later on your own time. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul makes the claim to the people in Athens, to the philosophers in Greece, to the Greek philosophers of his day, these pagans whose city was full of idols, He goes to them and says, Christ is your king. And God is calling on all people everywhere to repent and to serve him. That's the message that he preached. And it says in Acts chapter 17 that this message that they preached turned the world upside down because they were saying there's another king and it's not Caesar, it's King Jesus. And his rule and reign extends over all people, times, places, and spaces. You know, sometimes... And I've been guilty of this myself. And, and, and preachers will say things like this. You need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Have you ever heard that before? I've said that before. Not thinking about what I'm saying. Hear me in this. Whether or not you've made Jesus Lord of your life, he is Lord of your life. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord. We sing that song often. He is Lord, he is Lord. He has risen from the dead, and he is Lord. 
Listen, if you are the one who is making Jesus Lord, that makes you Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord. You get on your knees and acknowledge his lordship. You don't make Jesus king. You bow down in worship to him and acknowledge his kingship. If you think that you are the one who is putting Jesus on the throne, that makes you king. So it's not make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's no, Jesus is Lord. Repent and serve him. And that's the message that he preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the person, the king is Jesus. The people is all people, all nations, every tribe and tongue. A few weeks ago, I shared with you Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, which says that Jesus is presently now is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Listen, if Jesus is the ruler of the kings, he's ruler of everybody. So who does Jesus reign over? Who are the people? Every single person who draws breath. Jesus is their king, whether they acknowledge it or not. To, believe, to be a believer in Christ is to, believe, is to be someone who acknowledges the kingship and the lordship of Christ. So, number three, the place over where does he reign? Well, back to Matthew chapter 28, I think he makes it very clear that he reigns over all, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So, so what is the place over which he reigns? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Christ lays claim to kingship over every place, every space. Abraham Kuyper said this, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. In this statement, tell me, tell me what place is outside of this statement? Tell me, where is there an enclave that, that, that is separated, that is outside of the claim of Christ that he has all authority. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be people who want to rebel against Christ and to carve out for themselves a secular space. But to do so, hear me in this, to do so is to live in opposition and rebellion against Christ who says, nope, it's all mine. It's all mine. You see, so often, and I've heard it said this way, so often Christians today, they're begging to have a seat at the table, whatever table that is. You know, the table of secularism, the table of, of, of you know, the culture and, and the voice in the culture, the culture wars. You know, Christians, we just want a seat at the table. No, 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 no. Christ owns the table. Christ owns the table. Christians, we don't beg for a seat at the table. We assert his lordship over all things. And so then finally, what, is his, what are his precepts? What is, what, what, what is his law? Well, it's his law. It's his law and his word. And here we see it. You go to the nations, all nations, and you disciple them by teaching them to observe all 
that I have commanded you. So, so what is, how is it that Christ rules and reigns? What, what is his law? What is his word? Well, it's his word. It's the, it's the word of God. What this means is that God's word has authority in every place, in every space, in every sphere. There is no place that is outside and out from under the authority of the word of God. And so any place in space that says, no, 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 you can't bring God's word in here, that is a space that is living in rebellion against King Jesus. Now you might say, some people would object, they would say, well, if Christ is king over everything, why is the world such a mess? Why, why are things so bad if Christ is king? People point to all the things wrong in the world and say, therefore, Christ isn't king or his kingdom isn't here. That's, again, only a future reality. And I, I can understand why some might say that. They look at the world. The things seem to be not going so great at the moment. The world is not serving Christ. Amen? It's in great turmoil, a great mess. We all agree on that. But the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Does the current state of the world negate or cancel out the claims of Christ? Just because the world is bad, does that somehow cancel out what Jesus said? Do we look at the world in its current state and therefore say, well, therefore God's word isn't true? Is that how we live our lives as believers? Well, no. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. So, so matter the, no matter what the situation, no matter the circumstances, no, no matter the, the current state of affairs on the ground, we trust in the word of God. The word is our foundation. And I also want to remind you of the state of the world in which Jesus uttered these words. The, the state of the world when Jesus said these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. It wasn't so great. In fact, it was pretty awful. More awful than you and I can even imagine. It was so much worse than the world that we live in today, dem demonstrably worse, and much, much worse. Rampant paganism, idolatry everywhere, human sacrifice, slavery, sexual slavery, infanticide, all measure of sexual perversion, just rampant everywhere as the normal operating principle for all places and all cultures. But throughout the last 2,000 years, the church has understood this issue of the kingdom of God. And they have gone into the world. The church has gone out to the nations and preached Christ is king. He died and rose again. He's your king. He died to save you from your sins and to set you free to live a life of kingdom purpose. And here is his word. And you as his people must submit to his word. And when you submit to his word, his blessings flow down. 
And what we have seen over the last 2,000 years as the church has gone into all the world and pressed and pushed the king rights of Jesus to every place and to every space and people's hearts have been changed and they've been filled with God's spirit and they have applied his word, we've seen the blessing of God flow. So that we live in a day and age that is significantly better in the day and age in which these words were uttered. The world has changed in the last 2,000 years. And for the better. I would much rather be alive today than 2,000 years ago. I'd much rather be alive today than 500 years ago. I'd much rather be alive today than 200 years ago, 300 years ago. I mean, just think about the, the miracles in, in medicine that we have experienced in the last 100, 150 years. Penicillin, antibiotics. It used to be if you've got a minor infection in a, in a hangnail, it could kill you. The life expectancy going up, up, up. God's blessings flowing where his kingdom has been established, where people have submitted to his rule and to his reign. And so we've seen over the last 2,000 years that the church understands this. The church goes forward and proclaims this. We live in a day and age where many have forgotten this. Where we take it for granted. Well, we, we, we take the blessings of the Western world for granted. Not realizing that they were built on the foundation of the kingdom of God. And the word of God. And, and what the Western world and our culture is trying to do is to try and have the blessings that come from the creator and still, and, and, but throw out the creator. Get, get rid of the creator, but still have his blessings. It doesn't work that way. The, the reason why things are such a mess is because people are rejecting the lordship of Christ. They're living in rebellion against their king. If you go with me to Psalm chapter 2 uh, this morning, back into the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Again, well-worn territory uh, for us. Well, hopefully I can show you how this all fits together. Psalm chapter 2 talks about rulers, kings, presidents, congresses, supreme courts, who set their mind and their heart to live in rebellion against the Son of God. I know that's hard for us to imagine that anything like that could ever happen. Nevertheless, we know that from time to time, we've heard stories that there might be rulers who don't want to submit to Christ and his word. Well, what happens to those nations? Well, Psalm 2 tells us, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, well, they take counsel together, the kings, all, the, all of the cultural elites, they get together and they go off to Davos and they get together and they make plans on how to rebel against Christ. Get together against the Lord and his anointed, and this is what they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
Let, let us not be fettered by the, the dictates of Christ the King. We, we will not live in submission to Christ. We will not live in submission to his word. Let us plot, let us scheme on how we can live in rebellion and overthrow and throw off the reign of Christ. Well, how, does G, how does God respond to this? Is he worried about this? Is he concerned about this? Is he having to plot and to scheme on how to deal with this? No, verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs at every feeble attempt to overthrow his authority and his power. Why? Well, because when Satan led a rebellion against Christ in heaven with a third of the angels, all, all God simply had to do is you know, flick his finger, and there he goes, falling out of heaven. So if, if God has that power to do that with Satan, how much more does he have it to do with the people who are under Satan's influence? He, he is not worried about the state of the world. You need to know that. God is not worried at all. He, he is not freaking out up in heaven. Ah! No, he's laughing. And so if God looks at all of these feeble attempts and laughs, we, his people, shouldn't be down here wringing our hands either. Oh, no, what are they going to plan? What are they going to scheme? What are they going to come up with? Ah. No. No, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Christ is king. Whatever they try to do is going to come to naught. Whatever schemes they come up with, because no weapon formed against me is going to prosper. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That means he scoffs at them. He mocks them. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Listen, Christ has been firmly fixed. His authority firmly established at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. To, this is the father speaking to the son. He says this, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. See, this is not a verse that we are to ask God for the nations. This is a promise that the Father made to the Son. Son, all you need do ask, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. And you shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. What, what, what is their marching orders? The kings, the rulers, those in authority, the presidents, the courts, the justices, the congresses, what, what, the queens, all, all of these rulers. What is, their, what is their marching orders? Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. 
kiss the son, that means pay homage to, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why do we see so much turmoil in the world right now? Because there are people who are trying to live in rebellion against Christ. And those who do will come under his judgment. Those who rebel against him, who try to take the nations away from him, they can't. But they're going to be destroyed. And all of their schemes and all of their plots are going to come to nothing. To nothing. Because Christ is ruling and reigning over them. And the nations that will submit to the lordship of Christ, the Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The fact that things are bad when we rebel against Christ is not an argument that Christ isn't king, but in fact, he is king. And the nations that reject him and his word will come under his judgment. The fact that things are getting worse when we rebel against Christ tells us not that Christ isn't king, but that he is king and that he is judging the nations who rebel against him. I want to read you one more verse this morning. I know this is uh, a lot to take in, uh, and it's going to get worse. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, just one, one more passage this morning. I, I, want to, I really want to press this home in our hearts today. Again, as we're moving into a new season as a church, we need to have this idea firmly fixed in our minds. Daniel chapter 2. I don't know if you knew this, but there's more than the story of Daniel getting thrown into the lion's den in this book. Daniel 2 is one of the most significant prophetic passages in the whole Bible. And to me, I believe it makes the case for what I've been saying here this morning better than anything I could show you. It's a long chapter. I'm not going to take time to go through the whole thing this morning. Let me set it up quickly. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream. Daniel is one of uh, God's people. God's, the children of Israel lived in rebellion against God. They acted like the nations, the pagan nations. And so guess what God did to them? Because they would not live under his blessing, he said, fine, you'll have to live under my judgment. And he, he brought a wicked nation in to bring discipline to his people. And King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they ransacked Israel. They ransacked God's city, Jerusalem. They destroyed God's temple. They took away God's people into exile because of their idolatry, because of their paganism to discipline them. And so Daniel here is, he's serving as a, uh, he's serving as a minister, uh, one of the interpreters for the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's a terrible dream. It, it frightens him. It scares him. And so he wakes up and he says, I need someone to interpret this dream for me. And he calls together all his magicians, all his astrologers, all his fortune tellers, 
Again, he's a pagan king. He calls them all together and he says, tell me the interpretation to my dream. I must know what this interpretation is. This dream terrified him. And they said, of course, king. We'll get right on it. What's the dream? And the king says, no, no, no. First you have to tell me my dream and then you can tell me the interpretation. They say, well, well king, <laughs> how can we give you the interpretation if you don't tell us the dream? The king wisely says, if I tell you the dream, you'll just make up the interpretation yourself. You show me that you can really get in touch with the divine by telling me my dream and then I'll listen to your interpretation. Oh, and if you can't do this, I'm cutting all your heads off because you're all a bunch of phonies. Yeah, that's how it was back in the day. So they're all wringing their hands and the king finally, they can't come up with it. And so the king says, off with their heads. Daniel hears about this. He's part of that group. So he goes to the king and he says, will you give me, give me some time? I think he said three days. Let me pray. Let me seek my God. Let me see if he will give me the interpretation. So Daniel goes away. He seeks the Lord. The Lord shows him the dream. The Lord gives him the interpretation to the dream. And he comes back to the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at that time. And he gives him the dream and he gives him the interpretation. I want to show you some excerpts here, starting in verse 31. Daniel 2, 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. He's telling him the dream, a statue. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as I looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay, so Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, in this dream, is the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And we know that the, the kingdom that came and sacked Babylon was the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The Persians came in and they sacked Babylon. That is another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom, and we know from history that third kingdom is Greece. 
Greece sacked uh, the Persians and took over the kingdom. And Greece is the, the, the kingdom of bronze in this statue. And again, it says, they will rule over all the earth. And in verse 40, it says, and there shall be a fourth kingdom. So we have Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. These worldwide kingdoms, these worldwide empires that set themselves up against Christ and God and the kingdom of God. This fourth kingdom, strong as iron because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things, and like iron it crushes. It shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. We know that this is speaking of Rome because of the way their government was set up. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Verse 43, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, this is the key verse. In the days of those kings. In the days of those kings. What kings? Well, he talked about Babylon. He talked about Persia. He talked about Greece. And now he's talking about Rome. And he's saying, in the days of those kings, in the days of the Roman Empire, hear this, in the days of those kings, in the days of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. In the days of the Roman Empire, there was a stone cut out without human hands. Jesus constantly refers to himself as the stone that the builders rejected. But this stone has become the cornerstone. Jesus set up on the earth a kingdom that has destroyed every worldwide government that would try to exalt itself against Christ. And it will, his kingdom will fill the whole earth. Now that's not to say that there's not going to be other people who come along and try and establish another worldwide government. We've seen that. But not a single one of them has been successful because the kingdom of God is now the one worldwide government. And it is not some earthly ruler that is king, but it is King Jesus. We saw last century 
The Third Reich tried to set up a worldwide government. They tried to conquer the world. Their motto was a thousand years, that they were going to rule the world for a thousand years, the Third Reich. They didn't even make it out of Europe. Because the kingdom of God is going to crush every so-called kingdom. And it will grow and grow and grow and grow until it fills the whole earth. Just as the prophet said, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We, like Christians before us, like the generations who came before us, must understand who the king is. It is King Jesus. And every person, every people, every nation, every king that will not bow the knee to King Jesus will find themselves coming under the judgment of the king of kings. But every nation, every people, every family, every person that finds themselves submitting to the lordship of Christ will find themselves living in the blessing that comes from being part of the kingdom of God. And so we must, like the generations before us, proclaim this message that Christ is king. We do not confine the kingdom of God or the word of God to simply the church. His word is supreme in all areas, in every place. His word is the final and supreme word in every place in culture. And so we must seek first the kingdom. The kingdom is the person Christ. It's the people, all people. We seek to expand his kingdom by preaching and proclaiming his message. We seek to see his kingdom go to the nations of the world. We seek to see his kingdom manifest as people submit themselves to the lordship of Christ, applying his word to their lives we seek to apply the kingdom in our own life and to seek it first in our own life as we submit ourselves to Christ by obeying his word. It's not a matter of whether or not we're going to seek after something. We're all seeking and searching for something. The issue is not what, but, or not whether we will, but what we will seek. Will we set our mind to seeking Christ and his kingdom? Christ is your king today. Have you acknowledged his kingship? Have you acknowledged his lordship? Have you bowed the knee to Christ? You do not make Jesus Lord, he is Lord. You acknowledge his, it's not three o'clock yet already, is it? That's not my, that's my alarm I was using to pray the Lord's Prayer that just went off. Oh my goodness, it's not three, okay, we're good. Have you bowed the knee to Christ? He is Lord. Acknowledge his lordship, repent and turn to him in faith and you will receive the forgiveness of sins. You will receive healing, wholeness. You will live under his rule and under his blessing. And you will live in terms of seeking first his kingdom. Amen.